So, as Tim mentioned, we are in Acts chapter 13. We're actually going to be looking at verses 13 through 52, so we're covering a lot of text this morning. But as we've seen previously, what is happening in this particular text is that Paul, the apostle, is outlining basically the story of Israel. We saw that a few chapters back as Stephen did this. And this seems to be a common theme that takes place in the book of Acts. So with that, let's jump in and see what we have here. But first, I just want to quote um, J.K. Rowling, the author of the Harry Potter series. She says this. She says, there's always room for a story that can transport people to another place. There's always room for a story that can transport people to another place. And that's what good stories do. They transport us. And in so doing, our current realities are suspended for a time. Stories have power, right? They can entertain us. They can distract us when we need some distraction. They can cause us to laugh or cry. And great stories and storytelling will not only entertain and distract, but they can actually move us and inspire us to reorient our entire lives. The story told to the colonists living during the 1700s inspired them to rise up and take arms against the British Empire. The story that Martin Luther King Jr. told to America from the mid-1950s to the point of his death inspired and gave weight to the civil rights movement. Negatively speaking, the story told to Germany through the lips of Adolf Hitler in the 1930s and 40s led to the tragedy that is the Holocaust. The point is that stories shape the way we live. And the reality is that all of us are living in light of at least one of these many stories, if not more. This morning, we're going to hear the story of Israel through the lips of the Apostle Paul, and we will be confronted with how that story culminates in the person and work of Jesus. But it doesn't stop there. See, the mantle of Christ is placed upon the church, and we are called to bear witness to that light so that others might go free. And so let's take a look at how this whole thing starts. We're looking at Acts chapter 13, and we are going to look at verses 13 through 16 briefly as as Luke sets the scene of what's about to take place. It says this, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them, John Mark, and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. And so Paul and his companions, they leave Paphos, they head to Antioch in Pisidia. This is a different Antioch from what we saw in chapter 11. John Mark heads back to Jerusalem, and the first place they go, which was Paul's custom, is to the synagogue, because as we know from the book of Romans, see, Paul believes that the gospel is for the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so he follows that pattern, as we'll see throughout the book of Acts. And what happens next is that Paul is asked by the leader of the synagogue, after, after the reading of the law and the prophets, to offer a word of encouragement to the people, which was a customary thing to do when visitors arrived. 
And then the text continues, verses 17 through 22. It says this, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers, made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. I love that phrase, right? He put up with them, right? There are certain times where you have to put up with people, or maybe you're putting up with with your children because they're bothering you this morning. Who knows, right? We're always putting up with something or someone. And, and after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Men of Israel and you who fear God. So right off the jump, Paul is addressing both Jewish and Gentile God-fears. When we see that, that phrase, those who fear God, that is a description of Gentile God-fears, those who have not yet fully converted to the Jewish faith, probably meaning they hadn't yet gotten circumcised. And then he begins with Abraham and very quickly moves to Moses and the Exodus. But the emphasis is on the God who, one, lifted with uplifted arm, led them out of slavery. Right? See, our God is a God of redemption. He frees us from slavery. He is the God who, for about 40 years, put up with them in the wilderness. He's a God of patience and forbearance. He's the God who, after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. He's a faithful and covenant-keeping God. He's the God who also, following years of unfaithfulness, raised up David to be their king, a man after his own heart, who will do all his will. And so what's the point? is that the God who Paul is proclaiming and the God who we love and serve, he is faithful. He's faithful. And, and it is the story of this faithful God that must shape the way we live our lives as followers of Jesus. What story is shaping your life? What story is shaping our lives? And the story that Paul is putting forth, the story of Israel that culminates ultimately in the person and work of Jesus, which we'll get to in just a second, is the story that needs to shape how we live our lives. It's what has to inform everything we do. It is the foundation upon which we stand. That's what Paul is getting at in this text. And he's doing it by showing the faithfulness of Yahweh God who tracked with his people throughout her history. And those were not a faithful people. If you've read the, the Old Testament scriptures, you'll see how often they commit spiritual adultery against their God, how they go after foreign gods, but, but God remains faithful. 
he remains faithful and he sees it through until the person and work of Jesus arrives on the scene. And and let's continue, verses 23 through 25. It says, and when he came and saw the grace of God, he, nope, wrong part, not at all. That's not what it says. Verse 23, (laughs) Uh, where am I? Of, of, um, Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. See, God's faithfulness did not end with David. As David was not the point of the story, but rather he was a shadow pointing to another. In, other, in the words of Tim Mackey from the Bible Project, the scriptures are calling us to look for a king with radical trust in God his Father, who would allow his father to exalt him in the proper time, a king who came from Bethlehem like David and who had no outward features to mark him out as God's anointed one, a servant king like David who wouldn't shove his way into power, Israel's true king, is one who would be persecuted by his fellow Israelites. See, that's the sort of king that God was preparing us for. And it's so interesting because David's reign is the one that is consistently looked to and longed for throughout the Old Testament because he's preparing the way for something greater. He serves as a signpost for something more glorious Than he. And then there's this strange reference to John the Baptist that kind of just comes out of nowhere. What's going on here? Well, in the spirit of preparation, since that's kind of what we're looking at here, we're looking at how the story of Israel prepares us for the coming of Jesus. So in the spirit of preparation, as the story of Israel prepared the soil for the coming of Jesus, so too did John the Baptist. As all of this preparation meant that he must decrease, John the Baptist, so that Christ might increase. Again, it wasn't about John the Baptist, just as it wasn't about David. It's always been about Jesus. It's always been about the coming of the Savior. And isn't that the case with with Jesus submitting himself to a baptism of repentance, which is always so interesting. Have you ever wondered what that means? Why would Jesus submit himself to a baptism of repentance? Not so much that he was repenting of his own sin, because as we know, Jesus was sinless, but rather as the true Israel, Jesus was shouldering the sin of the nation, functioning as a king ought to in humility and service to his people. What's the point? The entire story of the scriptures finds its fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus. And in the same way John decreased, so that Jesus might increase, that's precisely how we are called to live our lives. What story is shaping our lives? What story are we living in light of? Because if it's a self-exalting story, it's the wrong story. It's the wrong story. The text continues. Verse 26 and following, it says, Brothers, Sons of the family of Abraham, 
and those among you who fear God. To us has been sent the, the, the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And, the, and though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has to fulfill, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. Because David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, he fell asleep and was laid with his fathers, and he saw corruption. See, Paul now directly addresses the people, basically telling them that they're not living in light of their own story. They're not living in light of their own story. A couple observations. It says, to us. See, Paul identifies himself with his hearers. He recognizes that he is one of them. He is Jewish, and he was one of them as well who didn't believe in the coming Messiah. And now he is telling them something new. And, and it's interesting. It says, they did not understand for all of the teaching that they have sat under. They missed the point. See, the goal of Israel's story was not Israel in and of itself, but rather Israel with its face postured toward the rest of the world, serving as a blessing to the nations, shining the light of Yahweh into the darkness of the surrounding world. They failed at that. Now, there were pockets where they didn't, but ultimately the story of Israel was not necessarily successful as we read throughout the Old Testament scriptures. The remnant really dwindled down to almost nothing until Jesus arrives on the scene. It also seems that Paul holds the religious leaders responsible, saying it was them who asked Pilate to have him executed, but it is God who raised him from the dead, and this is the good news that God promised to the Father. See, the point is that Israel's story finds its fulfillment in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, meaning that the story of Israel's brokenness is capped off with the story of new creation bursting forth in their midst. The resurrection of Jesus is the hope we all need because the resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits of new creation that we have all been longing for. See, death does not have the final answer in our story. Death does not have the final answer in the story of the world because Jesus rose from the dead. See, that's the crux of this whole thing we call Christianity. That's the only thing that matters because if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then we are the most to be pitied, Paul says. See, the resurrection is the thing that Paul centers on throughout all of his letters, in his speeches. This is what he cares about most because if that's not real, none of it is. None of it is. 
Death has been defeated. Whenever we sing of the resurrection, I find myself fighting back tears because I I understand that without it, I got nothing. I got nothing. If Jesus isn't alive and well, seated at the right hand of the Father, we have nothing. We die in our sins. We should just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's the truth, Redeemer. That's what matters most. And that's our only source of hope and comfort. It's our only source of hope and comfort. And that's what Paul is pressing on. He goes through the story of Israel. He points out the faithfulness of God. And it's the faithfulness of God as he carries this unfaithful people through the years. As he carries us, right? We are not exactly faithful all the time. Oh, we drop the ball regularly. Oh, but the beauty of it, the glory of it, is that in Christ, in Christ, our union with him, I speak about this often, our union with Christ means that we will be raised up with Christ. See, the inheritance that was given to the people of Israel, the land that they got, Oh, our inheritance is so much more glorious because we get resurrection life. We get resurrection life. We get new creation. The thing that the land was pointing to, again, another signpost for us. And that's all because Jesus rose from the dead. And we get everything he gets. That's what it means to be in union with Christ. That's what it means. We get everything he gets. We are adopted just like he was the firstborn of new creation. We will be glorified just like he is glorified, seated at the right hand of the Father. And in the same way Jesus dies, so too will we. But because of our position in Christ, we will not experience the second death. Because it's been crushed under the feet of our Savior. That is good news, Redeemer. That is the best news, that we have life. We have life. And we are called to live in light of that story. That's the story that must shape everything we do, every decision we make, how we engage with our spouse, how we engage with our children, how we engage with our families, our friends, our neighbors. Everything must be informed by this story. This is the story that matters. What story is shaping your life? It's interesting, there's a couple of Old Testament quotes here. He quotes Psalm 2. And it's interesting that he quotes Psalm 2 because Psalm 2 is a royal psalm. And we talked about the psalms about two years ago. My first sermon series here when I got to the church, we went through the book of Psalms and we talked about the different types of psalms. And and this particular psalm, Psalm 2, is a royal psalm. So it's appropriate that it is quoted in reference to Jesus because he is the messianic king. And then he quotes Isaiah 55, 3, and it's a promise given to the people of Israel. And the you in this text is actually plural, meaning that the blessings of David, which we are, which we are seeing, is resurrection life. And they are for both Jesus and for those of us, by faith, 
who have, brought, have been brought into union with him. See, that you is plural. That's important. Grammar matters, right? The you is plural. So it can't just be for Jesus. It's for the church. Those of us who have been brought into union, we will get the blessings of David. And then he quotes Psalm 16, saying that you will not let your Holy One see corruption. This can't be about David. Because what happened to David? He died. And he wasn't risen to new life. But guess what? The new David was. He was risen to new life, and his body did not see corruption. Oh, the resurrection is everything. And it is all over the place as we travel through the book of Acts. And I've mentioned this before, that we see Luke constantly using words and phrases that allude to the resurrection. But right here, he's coming right at it. But God raised him from the dead. Oh, that is good news. That is good news. The story of Israel and the promises made to them only make sense if Jesus was raised from the dead. And so the question that I will keep asking throughout our time this morning, what story is shaping your life? If it's not the story of the resurrection, then it is a story of death, decay, and separation from God. What story is shaping your life? Oh, the beautiful story of the resurrection of Jesus. We possess everything because of it. We possess everything because of it. The text goes on in verse 38. 38 through 43, it says, Let it be known to you, therefore, so in light of everything I just said, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. And so what we have going on here is that Paul's basically landing the plane of his sermon. And then he issues a warning, which seems to be heeded by some. But, but let's take a look. What happens here? See, Paul shows that while the proper understanding of the story of Israel leads to Jesus, Moses, apart from Christ, leads to slavery. Did you catch that? The proper understanding of the story of Israel leads to Jesus, but Moses, apart from Christ, leads to slavery. And there's something ironic there because it was Moses who was used by God to free the people of Israel in the Exodus from Egypt. But yet, without Jesus, the path of Moses leads to death. You catch that? That's ironic. And it's meant to be because the story of the Exodus is the redemption story of the Old Testament. And now Paul is kind of flipping it a little bit. He's saying, yeah, 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 that's true, but it was pointing to something better. It was pointing to something bigger. And if you don't get that, then you're still dead in your sins. And, and more interestingly is that the word freed here could actually be translated justified. So Basically, what is happening here 
And by him, it says, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from everything from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. And so justification means that, that the judge has decided that we are not guilty. John Murray, Reformed theologian, says, In a word, justification is simply a pronouncement or declaration respecting the relation of the person to the law, which he, the judge, is required to administer. In other words, we are declared not guilty in Christ. We are justified by grace through faith. Freed. Freed. What a beautiful thing. Because we were enslaved to sin. And God broke those shackles when Jesus rose up from the dead. The point is, is that the story we choose to adopt and live from will either set us free, justify us, or lead to our enslavement, death, hell, separation from God. And living in light of a story is more than a simple intellectual assent to some word or truth as belief characterizes an entire way of life. See, belief isn't just here. Belief is also here, how we walk out this thing we call Christianity. How we live our lives is part of what we believe. Because what James says, he says, faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. And see, Moses without Jesus leads to death. Faith without works also leads to death. It's not just what takes place in our minds, although the mind is extremely important. God is calling us to live our lives in faithfulness and holiness, in repentance, confessing our sins to one another, holding one another accountable, caring for the broken, the poor, living in light of a new story, a new creation story. What story is shaping your life? What story is shaping your life? The text continues, verses 44 and following. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, to the Jew first. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are now turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. See, jealousy overtakes the people. And they seek to move people away from this good news to which Paul speaks a word of judgment. It says that they judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. What an interesting turn of phrase there. They judged themselves being unworthy. 
right? We are our own worst enemies more often than not. And that's exactly what we're seeing happening here. And then it says, for so the Lord commanded, and he quotes Isaiah, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. The thing about this particular passage in Isaiah is that it is a reference to what has been called the servant songs of Isaiah. And it's really interesting because the servant in the Old Testament is Israel. But then the servant is picked up by Jesus. But then we see Paul identifying himself as the servant of the Lord. And guess what? Us who are in Christ. Remember that, remember that, that beautiful doctrine of our union with Christ. Not only are we justified because of our union with Christ. Not only are we adopted because of our union with Christ. Not only are we sanctified. And, and not only do we have an inheritance because of our union with Christ. But we take up the mantle of the servant of the Lord because of our union with Christ. Now make no bones about it, he still must increase and we must decrease. I'm not sitting here saying that because we have adopted, how, how, that we have been given this title, that we are now on equal level with God. No, 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 no. That is not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is that the mantle of Christ has been placed upon us so that we might go forth and proclaim the good news that death no longer has any reign because Jesus rose from the dead and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. We proclaim good news now. We are the people of the resurrection, the Easter people, as one theologian calls us. I love that, that we are the Easter people. We are the people of the resurrection because what we're about is life. Because what story that we live in light of is a story of resurrection life. Therefore, our lives as the church needs to be marked by life and the proclamation of good news. And the good news is that Jesus is alive and well, seated at the right hand of the Father. He is king over all the universe, and he, and he called us. Right? It says, it says, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Yeah, that's one of those election verses, meaning that he calls people to himself. He calls people to himself. And if you've been called, then you will believe and you will walk in faithfulness. What a beautiful story that is. That's our story. And that's the story we're called to live in light of. God is faithful. And he will continue to offer his hand of grace and forgiveness. But hardened hearts will not thwart his plan as the gospel continues to break ground beyond the borders of Israel. Thus fulfilling the promise of Abraham that his seed would bless the nations. You see where this is all going? And we've been looking at this for the last couple of months now. This gospel which started out as a mustard seed, right? The kingdom of God. It just expands. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And the irony is that it gets bigger through death and suffering. Right? One theologian calls this left-handed power as opposed to right-handed power. The power that subverts. The power that goes underneath. The power that doesn't come from on high, but rather is, is kind of from, from the bottom up. It's a power that is, that is manifested through brokenness, through death. And then Jesus raises us up on the last day. Oh, what a glorious thing. Right, that's what Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 2. 
where he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and then he was highly exalted. And, and even our story, how do we experience glory? Well, Romans 8 tells us that we will be glorified with Christ provided we suffer with Christ. This is, this is good news. This is good news. And it makes sense of the difficulties we endure as followers of Jesus. It makes sense of certain things. The resurrection is everything. The resurrection is everything. As we close our time this morning, and as we prepare our hearts for communion, the question that we need to continually wrestle with, which story is shaping our lives? Which story are we relying on for our freedom? Political stories are compelling. They're also important, but they cannot be what is central to our life as people of the resurrection. Ethnic and racial stories, they give us points of contact with one another and communities, and, and some of those stories are filled with joy, while others have led to trauma and pain, but we must sift them all through the story of our resurrected king. Our families of origin, whether we experienced a wonderful upbringing or have histories that inflicted pain upon us, we need to know these stories, understand them, work through them. But the only path forward is new creation. Sexual confusion and desire, while strong and deeply embedded in all of us, considering the narratives that are put forth in every single corner of our culture, it all must be viewed through the lens of the resurrection and story of Jesus. That's the story. Similar to when we spoke about identity a few weeks back, the story of the resurrection is what shapes us. And a minor disclaimer, all of these things and, and so many more that I'm sure I could have listed, they're not little things, and I understand that. In fact, working through them alone is more often than not impossible. Sometimes and maybe oftentimes working through them requires the help of a professional Christian counselor who can point us to Jesus. And so as we go to the table this morning, I want to challenge us all to reflect on the things that we're passionate about. The things that trigger us, that arouse in us strong emotional responses. Are they controlling us? Are they the things that drive us? We can be passionate. In fact, we must be passionate, but we need to remind ourselves and one another that the story of Christ is the thing that must shape the way we engage all of it. All of it. Which story is shaping your life? Which story are you living in light of? Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for the story of the resurrection. We thank you for the wonder that we who have bent our knee to your son Jesus, to our king. Father, we've been freed from slavery. We've been given new life. We've been adopted into a family, a new family. And Father, for that, we are eternally grateful, Lord God. Father, I pray that we would remember this story, that we would speak this story to one another, to ourselves regularly, Lord God. That we would not grow tired 
of the wonder and beauty that is the story of your son, Jesus, Father. I beg that of you. Give us wisdom through the power of your spirit, Lord God. Bring to remembrance through the work of your spirit this story, how it's shaped our lives. Let us set up those stones of remembrance throughout our lives, Lord, so that we can look back when we grow weary, Lord God, and remember what you've done and how you continue to remain faithful, Lord God. Oh, you are so faithful, Lord. We thank you. In Christ's name, amen. And so, Redeemer, as the ushers come forward and